This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. There's always first-time listeners, and so let me just say we're here for the next hour to take people's questions. Maybe you are new to the Bible and you're full of questions, or you're a seasoned saint and you're struggling with a passage of Scripture or looking for a contextual interpretation or how it applies to your life or family or ministry. If we can be of help, all you need to do, again, pick up the phone locally. It's 843, the South Carolina 843 Exchange, and it's 525-1859. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, standing for the Bible line, tbl at net. You know, sometimes people have a question during the week, and they say, I'll forget on Tuesday, or I'll be at work on Tuesday. And by the way, when you do ask a question, when it's answered, and sometimes it takes a month or two, they come in from all over the country, foreign countries at times, uh, we will email you, letting you know, hey, it was answered on February, da-da-da-da-da. And you can click on the audio file and listen to the answer. People say, well, why don't you just type out an answer for me, Pastor? Well, I'd like to, but I just don't physically have the time and I can speak a lot faster than I can type. You know, I speak 750 words a minute with gusts up to 1,000. So occasionally, you know, I will type an answer if I feel like, hey, this can't wait 10 minutes. But most can. So with that said, uh, you can also during the week call this 843-525-1859 exchange. And when we're not here, you can leave a question on the Bible line with an audio file just want it to be brief and uh, know that you have the chance to be heard. Well, as a matter of fact, why don't we go ahead and uh, we have one of those recordings, so let's go to them now and uh, hear what they had to ask. Good morning, Pastor Carl and Rick. This is Joanna, and here's my question for you. When I witness to people, I find that they have a problem with accepting being born again because it will mean that they and the people they know, their family members or loved ones, didn't believe that. And so therefore they must be in hell because they didn't, they were not born again. And I just wanted to know what you should say to people when they reject the gospel and reject Jesus based on that premise that their family members and they and loved ones did not were not born again and did not believe what the Bible says about eternal life in Jesus, that they were good people and that was enough. And so I wanted to know how you should reply to somebody that comes back when you say that. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's a fantastic question. So let me see if I can respond. Uh, Certainly you want the person to understand that no one is good enough to enter the kingdom of God for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Interestingly, the word for sin, hamatano, 
Uh, and in Hebrew, the word for sin in both languages was used outside of Scripture as an archery term, such that if you were aiming at a target and you missed the bullseye, they could say in Greek or Hebrew, you missed the mark, you missed the bullseye. And that's the descriptive verb, noun, and adjective that God uses in the New Testament to describe the lost person, which is all of us by nature, that we've missed the mark of God's righteousness. And so one, I want them to understand that good works can't get them into heaven for two reasons. Reason number one is good works can't remove the stain of sin. If somehow from this day forward they lived a perfect life and never sinned again, which would be impossible, but if they could do that, it wouldn't clean up the mess behind them. And so good deeds aren't like some big eraser. It's not like God has scales. The Bible speaks nothing of scales where the good outweigh the bad, but that's a mentality that many people have. So good deeds, one, can't remove the stain of sin, and your iniquity has made a separation between you and God. The revelation makes it clear that God's not going to allow sin into his heaven to to defile it. But secondly, good works can't satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. Uh, The wages of sin is death. If you commit some heinous crime that's worthy of death, you know, you can say, well, I'll do community service. And no, that won't make it. The law says you deserve to die. Well, God says the soul who sins must die. And we say, well, I'll get baptized or I'll join the church or I'll keep the golden rule, but it can never satisfy God's justice. So God has provided a way of escape. Now, with that said, you want to dismiss that being good is not good enough, but you also want to underscore what happens when someone dies to, and goes to hell. Jesus gives a very vivid description with the rich man and Lazarus. It's found in Luke chapter 16, a rich man who was well off, and he dies, and he goes to a place of torment, whereas Lazarus, who is poor, um, struggling for food, he dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom, a a metaphorical expression for righteous Sheol or Old Testament paradise. Uh, One goes to heaven, we might say, the other goes to, to, to judgment, not because one is poor and the other is rich, but simply because one's a believer and the other is not. And that one man had not repented is evident from what he tells at the end of the chapter. In fact, um, He pleads, he says, I beg you, Father, that you send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Um, So there's a, a sense that he is clear that they are lost. They are like him. Uh, they are headed for this place of torment. Why? Because of their unbelief. But Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And we often think, well, you know, well, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You know, if some miraculous event takes place, then they'll repent. Well, Jesus was raised from the dead, and men did not repent. There was a man named Lazarus, clearly not the same one that's mentioned here in this parable in light of the chronology, but there was a man named Lazarus who literally actually comes out of the grave alive, and many believe, but from that day forward, many sought to murder Jesus. So we think, well, if someone just saw a miracle, they would repent. No, not true. The scripture is clear that ultimately what men need to hear is what Jesus said. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that's another way of saying if they don't listen 
to the Tanakh, if they don't listen to the Old Testament, they will not be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead, rises from the dead. And so it's the Bible that is authoritative, that is alive and sharper and active than a two-edged sword. So here's a man in hell, and if for the sake of argument, uh, to answer Joanna's question, they have a loved one whom they perceive to be in hell, that loved one would say, I wouldn't want you to come here. And it's not like even if someone dies and goes to hell, like they're going to have some kind of family fellowship with their loved one. Uh, No, it's a place of uh, isolation. It's a place of utter blackness where the flames burn black. It's a place of eternal torment. Not to mention, sometimes I think we'll be surprised when we get to heaven. There are some people who have heard the gospel and seemingly just put it off, saying, no, I'm not interested. But there is a deathbed conversion in the Bible. Now, I should say there's only one, the thief on the cross, only one so that none should despair. But there is one so that, um, you know, we need to weigh carefully what we are going to do. Only one so that nobody's going to presume, but there is one so that nobody needs to despair. And it's possible that this one whom you think rejected Jesus is not in hell. Uh, There is a man, the thief on the cross, who in the closing moments of his life turns to Jesus in faith. And it was not some empty faith. On either side of Jesus, there are two Jewish men who are involved in an insurrection. That's something not that Gentiles were engaged in, but Jews were engaged in because they wanted to overthrow Rome. And both men, according to Matthew's account, cursed and blasphemed. The word curse is blasphemeo. We get our word blaspheme from it. They blasphemed the Lord Jesus. But before the six hours was over, one turned in faith and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to his buddy, you know, this one, meaning Jesus, we, he's done nothing wrong. You and I, we're getting what we deserve. He was saying, Jesus is sinless. You and I are sinners worthy of death. And that's what we need to acknowledge, that our sin is worthy of death, and therefore good deeds can't really satisfy the penalty. How do I know he, he meant that Jesus was sinless and we're sinners worthy of death? Because of what follows. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized that, hey, this one that we had been making fun of and blaspheming is the one that we learned about as Jewish young men, the one that the scriptures spoke of, the Messiah himself who had a kingdom that Jesus was not just going to be thrown in a common grave like most crucified victims, but he is the one that the prophets wrote of who would actually rise again from the dead because he's the sinless son of God who would provide a way of escape so that men could go to heaven and not to hell. So always point your friend back to what someone in hell said, number one. Number two, the possibility that who knows, maybe in the closing moments of their life, they called upon Christ in faith. And for them not to make a decision is to rebel against God, that they are living in rebellion when God, who has their best in mind, wants not only to forgive them and provide a way of escape so that they can go to heaven, but so that they can have life abundantly, life that really matters. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Sonia from Rincon, Georgia writes, I would like some advice on a major life decision 
that I am contemplating. I am a veterinarian and I work full time. I know that you and biblical doctrine frown upon women working outside of the home. My husband and I have been having some issues with our son in that he isn't behaving or performing well at school or in his sports. My son dislikes his school, his after-school program. I've tried to find alternate care for him, but all other options were closed. I was so devastated by this, and I prayed that God allow me to discover the true meaning of this current trial. When I finished my prayer, I remembered a conversation I had had a few weeks ago with my boss, who is a wonderful Christian woman, that she would be open to changing my schedule to allow me to have a shorter day so that I can be home in time to pick up my children from, from school. It was then I realized that perhaps God was closing doors so that I would make this choice to be there for my children. I'm terrified to make this choice because I'm worried about how I'll be perceived at work, and I don't want to let any of my colleagues down. Do you have any biblical counsel for me to help me through this transition? I am certain that this is what God is calling me to do, and my husband is absolutely supportive of this change. Well, that is a great question, and I appreciate you asking it. Sonia, I know she's only been a Christian uh, in the last couple of years through this whole COVID thing and live-streamed our messages, and God's done a great work in her heart. Now you're struggling with the issue. Let me define some terms here. You mentioned that I have a problem with women working outside of the home. Well, first of all, uh, not all women. Uh, Listen to what the Apostle Paul recorded in Titus chapter 2. Older women are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? So that, here's the reason, they may encourage the young women from a lifestyle of meaning, from a lifestyle of integrity, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. Um, That's a really important term, workers at home, but put it in its context. He's assuming that this mother is married. Women are to love their husbands. So I say right off, not all women are dismissed from, you know, um, this admonition, but some are. You have a single mom. Maybe she was divorced against her will. Maybe she lived an immoral lifestyle before she was saved, and now she has children, and she's a single mom. There's all kinds of reasons for being a single mom. Sometimes a husband dies. So she doesn't fit the parameters of what Paul is speaking of. So there are some single moms who need to work, but it's amazing to me how some of them have been very creative. They've had modified schedules so that they can do everything. I've known some single mothers who were able to meet the South Carolina statute. I know it because they were members of Community Bible Church Christian Academy for Home-Based Education, and they still had a job to provide for their children and at the same time was were able to um, build into the lives of their kids. So sometimes it's amazing to me what you can do and how creative you can be. But here, let's not um, downplay and, and dumb down what God has said because what I'm about to say most pastors will not say today, one, because some are living in disobedience themselves. They've got their wives out in the work field Um, while they have their children in daycare and other places. uh, So they can't preach with integrity this text of Scripture. Some churches are running daycare centers 
that are basically encouraging young women to go against God's standard to be a worker at home. Oh, they wouldn't call it a daycare. They called some kind of education facility. Okay, call it what you want. But the fact is, is that God's ideal is that a woman is to be an ergos or oikos. Oikos is a word for home. Ergos, we get our word energy from it. A home worker. And that's the thought. She is to be a worker at home. That's not to say she can't earn money from her home. So you mentioned you're a veterinarian. I think of a lady in our church. In fact, I'm going to make a note here to call her for you uh, so that she'll call you and talk to you. She's a mom. She's got a a bunch of children. Um, I can't remember exactly how many. I think it's eight. Um, You're talking about Julie? Yeah. I think they're actually friends. Oh, they are. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe Julie. It was Julie that actually kind of introduced her to Christ. Okay, so that's fantastic. So uh, that's wonderful. So you can see someone like Judy. She's a veterinarian, but she does it all from home, which is pretty creative. Um, So there are some things sometimes that you can do. But here's the thing is you say your husband is supportive of your staying home and building into these children. And you're already seeing issues that are unfolding in their life. I mean, look, as a general principle, if you put your children today in the government school from kindergarten through high school, and you expect as a general principle to turn out a godly product, it's not going to happen because there's too much that's going against them. Uh, they're being indoctrinated from an early, early age. I just We just had someone contact us the other day, and their third grader is being taught transgenderism, and, you know, and they're trying to sort all through this with this you know, little girl who's being taught transgenderism here in the government school system. I mean, it's pathetic, the evil that is unfolding. And, of course, a lot of parents, due to COVID— and the school's being closed and watching their children live stream, you know, they're being taught this. So, one, you've got a supportive husband. And if um, he's going to allow you to leave that profession so you can build into the lives of your children, that is God's ideal. It really, really is. And so, you know, it's great to your boss to say, well, look, I'll give you a modified schedule, which says a lot about you, Sonia, that he doesn't want to lose you because you're obviously doing your work with excellence. So even if he can have you 20 hours a week instead of 40 or 50, he's happy to have you. But it might be in the process you're still sacrificing your children on the altar of paganism through the government school system. The government school system is a total disaster. And again, you know, I I know there are people, it just seemingly they have no other choice But it is a total disaster, the indoctrination process that is going on. And the Antichrist in this nation and nations across the world, he's preparing, or Satan is preparing a generation for the coming Antichrist. Not the Antichrist. The Antichrist hadn't stepped on the scene yet. But Satan, who is the spirit of Antichrist, who someday is going to empower the Antichrist and that unholy trinity, he is orchestrating the world system so that people will give their allegiance to this coming world leader. So I would say everything and anything you can do to get them out. And the fact, you know, there's women whom I think if they just said, if my husband would be supportive like this, I would just like float on cloud nine. So you've got a husband who's already behind you and so you need to take the proper steps. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, 
we did get an anonymous uh, listener that wanted to ask the following. What are your thoughts on snowflake adoption? I know that conception outside the womb goes against God's ways, but know that God does honor all life. If someone has not been able to have children on their own, how do you think God feels, and your thoughts as well, if they did snowflake adoption? These embryos are ones that have already been created and are sitting in storage or will be destroyed. uh, These are lives already formed that will end up being destroyed if they're not born. I know people should have not done in vitro in the first place and should have waited on God's timing and God's will. But since they did do this, what do you think God wants to do with these frozen embryos that are already created, lives that have already been conceived and formed? Would God want someone to be willing to carry these embryos to be born, or would that be against God and his ways? It's a great question. So, you know, right off, you have to ask and answer, is in vitro fertilization in a Petri dish, sometimes with a different mother's egg or a different father's sperm, uh, because one person has a problem and then implanted in the couple that is seeking to have a baby, is that legitimately right? And I would say no for several reasons. Reason number one is that in these experiments that unfold in laboratories, uh, many times there are spare embryos, as you call them, and uh, they're either just destroyed or flushed down the toilet. That's human life. If life begins at conception, if life begins at fertilization, and that's what the Bible teaches, then in vitro is really involved in the earliest of abortions of a sort that we might say. They're killing little babies. You say, well, what about the thousands? I don't know how many of these snowflake babies as they like to call them. And the term snowflake adoption um, is used to describe the babies that are in storage, just like snowflakes are they're frozen and the unique gifts from God, and each one is different. So uh, these little embryos are frozen, um, and they are each different, but they are all humans. So what's the status of all these little babies? Well, <laughs> Those that are still alive, because some of them are thought out, I guess, if I can use that term. It's probably not the scientific term. Some of them don't survive after they're thought, but everyone has a place in heaven. Why? Because of the biblical principle that if a child is unaccountable, God looks at them. He compares them as those who will be recipients in heaven. So I think for a couple to get involved in snowflake adoption because of their desire to have a baby is really to encourage in vitro, and it's to encourage a process that I don't think for one moment God would give and, uh, you know, stamp his approval on. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And while that particular verse in Genesis 1 doesn't say anything about the means of producing children, uh, Scripture is clear in the verses that follow in the second chapter, the man and his wife, meaning Adam and Eve, uh, the two shall become one flesh, and that's the means by which God wants to bring children into this world. Not to mention there's a lot of other options that are open to parents. There's certainly adoption which you need to go through very carefully 
because there's a lot of heartache in adoptions and people have an idealistic view of what an adoption is going to be like and it's not always as easy as they think. On the other hand, there are children who are unwanted and who are adopted and it's just the greatest delight in the world uh, for that young couple or that older couple to be able to have a child that they're able to bring into their home and love and bring up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. I would say the most difficult adoptions are probably international adoptions because sometimes you don't know much of the history, but it happens in this country too where you have you know, drug, um, drug mothers and some of the damage that's done to the little child, children and the parents aren't prepared for what's coming down the road. Some are and some can handle it. But some are just like, whoa, we never thought this was going to happen. We never thought our children were going to be out in the front porch screaming and yelling and out of control when nothing's happened. And uh, just the stories I heard, uh, it's just really heartbreaking at times. So I'm not in favor of snowflake adoption. Uh, I'm just not because it really underscores and underwrites in vitro, and I don't think that's a good process. Generally speaking, the whole in vitro process uh, costs from ten to twenty thousand dollars. Where if you wanted to adopt a baby, it's uh, usually about eight to ten thousand dollars. So there's other options that are open to you, and that's what I would encourage you to do. And look, there there are some couples in this world. God just is part of His plan. Didn't plan for them to have children. And sometimes we have to accept that because God has a different plan for them and wants to use them in a different way, just like there are some people in this world that will never be married. And it's not because they're weird or anything like that or homosexual or lesbian. They're, they're, God just has a different plan for them, and we need to be willing to accept that and understand that and embrace that, as Paul teaches in First Corinthians chapter 7. Good question. Let's go to the next. Okay, we just had a dictated question. A listener's wife divorced him a few years ago. He does not think she's coming back, and he has chosen not to remarry because he does not want to be disqualified for a church office. If she was to come back, would it still be okay for him, even though she was married before? He was the second of her marriages, and also he appreciates all your influence and teaching in his life. Well, uh, it, it's a great question, and I appreciate your your heart to want to obey God and to do what is right and pleasing to the Lord, because we live in a day where many people have very, very little desire to do that. And so Jesus, of course, in a couple of different passages, Matthew 19 and Matthew uh, and Mark 10 being two central passages uh, he deals with the subject of divorce and remarriage. Um, there was a couple of schools of thought back in Jesus' day, and one was the school of Hallel, the other was the school of Shammai. One was more liberal than the other, and they basically wanted to know, Jesus, what's your stance? And, you know, one school said you can divorce your wife for any reason you want. You don't like the way she looks, her voice is too loud, whatever it is. Or cooking's not what you thought it was going to be, so you could divorce her. And another school said, no, uh, only under these parameters. Um, and Jesus brought it to a level that none of the rabbinical schools of his day affirmed. And so he makes it really clear that God's will and purpose from the beginning is that a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become 
one flesh, and that's God's earnest desire for us. So you're dealing with kind of a interesting situation. What happens when uh, someone has been married and uh, they divorce and then they remarry again and then they divorce their second spouse? Uh, is it legitimate? for that person to go back and remarry the second time? And God's clear answer is no. And so Moses deals with this in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is really the um, the point of inference that the Pharisees, who represented one school, and the Sadducees, who typically represented another school on divorce, uh, argued over. And it was a verse that's found in Deuteronomy 24. Let me read it to you. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. So then the question becomes, what did he mean by that, no favor in his eyes? And again, I told you there were two camps who looked at this phrase differently. Uh, She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And she writes her And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends it out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband, the second husband, turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, so now she's being divorced from her second husband and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband uh, dies who took her to be his wife, Then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. And then listen, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And I can promise you, any time God in the Old Testament, just take out a concordance, look up abomination, every single moral issue that God calls an abomination then for a man to sleep with a man, for uh, a man to dress up in a woman's dress, and on and on. Everything that God calls uh, bestiality, whatever it is that he calls an abomination then, it is an abomination now. So if you're married, you get a divorce, your wife marries a second time, she divorces the second man, can the first husband go back to his wife? And the answer is no. Why? Because you would have basically a legalized form of adultery. And God says, no, that, that's an abomination. That's how sacred the marriage covenant is to the Lord. So, you know, one, I want to affirm you and admire you for wanting to do what is right and pleasing to the Lord. And some say, well, that's the Old Testament law. Well, look, there's a lot of things that are in here under the law, some that's part of the ceremonial law and some that's part of the moral law. But everything that's in the moral law still has full application. It doesn't have to be mentioned in the New Testament. God doesn't speak about a human having a relationship with an animal, but God calls that an abomination, found nowhere in the New Testament. But I can tell you, it is still an abomination in this day as it was in Moses' day when he recorded it. And so is this. And so um, you just need to go on as a single man and let God use you in that state. And don't be, like, discouraged, like, okay, I can't serve in the office of elder or deacon because you can serve in any other capacity. Um, And there are tons of leadership opportunities in a local assembly. Not to mention you could be a missionary or all kinds of different things, even full-time ministry 
opportunities, but you need to understand what the restrictions are. And it's not because God's down on divorced people, not at all. It's just simply he wants to model the ideal. Why? Because of the sacredness of marriage and because I, the God of Israel, Malachi 2, hates divorce, and he hates it not only because it's tearing apart two living people that God glued together to be one until death separates them, but also because of the damage that it does to the children. And God wants to protect that, and so he models the ideal. And and sadly, you know, when we look for elders and deacons in the church, take the office of elder or pastor or bishop, depending on your English rendering, there is actually 22, some would say 23 qualifications that are given between 1 Timothy uh, 3, Titus chapter 1, Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter chapter 5, over 20 specific qualifications. So we shouldn't just ask, well, have they been married before? Uh, we need to ask the question, um, hey, do they have a good reputation with those who are on the outside? That's one of the qualifications. So like when we um, look at people potentially to serve in an office, we give them a questionnaire because we may not know certain things about them that we need to know, and we don't want them to serve too quickly in the office. So for instance, um, one of the questions that we ask is, do you pay your bills on time? Do you have a good reputation in the community with paying your bills on time? And I've had people fill out, say, a deacon questionnaire and say no. Uh, When we've looked for a pastor in the church, I'll say based on what Jesus said in Luke 16, he who is faithful in a little thing is also faithful in much. He who is unrighteous in a little thing is also unrighteous in much. What's the little thing? Money. That's what he's talking about. Based on this verse of Scripture, can we do a, are you willing to give us your Social Security number so that we can do a financial background check on you? Why is that? Because, again, if a guy comes and he serves as a pastor or as a deacon and he doesn't pay his bills on time, we don't want him uh, to be uh, serving in that office. So you have to look at the whole package And again, it's not an issue of forgiveness. It's an issue of integrity. It's an issue of having qualified men to serve in the leadership of the local church. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and another one that was just called in and dictated was uh, from the gentleman who says, this past Sunday, you were speaking on roles of marriage. And this listener would like to know, what does it look like to raise a feminine daughter And where do you draw the line with being a tomboy taking things too far? Okay, so I did make a a remark. It was just kind of a side remark. Um, Sometimes I'll say things that aren't even in my notes, and there's so many things that I don't include in a service. Uh, When I give a sermon, I usually preach for an hour, and sometimes I leave out 50% of what, you know, I thought could be taught, but we'd have a two-hour sermon, and I know the um, mind can only absorb what the seat can endure, so at some point you have to, you know, you have to draw a line. Uh, but with that said, I I underscored what Paul was teaching in First Timothy, in uh, what Peter was underscoring as well in First Peter chapter 3, where he uses this term adornment. And he's encouraging women, especially if they're married to an unbeliever, but it would certainly apply to someone who's married to a believer who's out of fellowship and how you can win them back. 
but he's uh, really describing a mixed marriage, which would sometimes happen because, you know, a couple's married and then one gets saved and the other doesn't. And in this case, the woman's saved and the husband is not. And so how can you win them without a word um, so that uh, this disobedient one might come to faith? And so he talks about their chaste and respectful behavior, uh, that their adornment should not merely be external, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. And then he illustrates it with godly women of old, specifically Sarah, who, if you know about her, she was one of the most beautiful women described in Scripture. Men were still going after her in her 60s. Uh, With that said, God says, work on the inside. But he's not saying jettison the outside. He says, just don't let it only be external. And so um, I... Was married. I'm married to a woman I've been married to for over 40 years, and we had five children together. And um, my daughter Grace Hannah is right in the middle of four boys. But I have to admire my wife for the great job that she did of bringing her up with full femininity, because uh, her brothers, you know, wanted to you know do things with her that were guy things. But because they were learning what a woman should be like, they respected that. And so she didn't become, quote-unquote, a tomboy. I'm sure she was maybe more outgoing than uh, some young women because she had four brothers in certain realms. But uh, she is very much a woman and has always been that way. And so this is important. You know, I was speaking just recently to someone And they asked me, Pastor Carl, here's my brother in Europe, and I want to show you his little girl. And his little girl was dressed up like a little boy. So this is his niece. His brother just had their first baby. Lives in Germany. Americans moved to Germany. But Americans being influenced and impacted by a godless culture where, oh, no, you dress your kids gender neutral, or maybe you think this girl is really a boy, so you dress him up like a boy. And he said, look, I I have a real problem with that. What should I say to my brother? This is what I said, and he got mad at me and hung up. <laughs> I said, well, you said the right thing, and he needs to hear the truth, and he needs to know that, no, this is wrong. She needs to be dressed like a little girl. And it's important. You know, if someone is a tomboy, and again, you know, there's nothing wrong with a a girl wearing jeans. It's not an issue of, you know, oh, a woman dressing up in a man's clothing. Uh, No, that's not what the text is talking about. Jeans didn't exist. In fact, at that point when Moses penned those things, they didn't have pants. All they had was robes. And so the difference that God is underscoring is that when you look at a man, when you look at a woman, you ought to be able to tell the difference. You ought to be able to tell the difference in their clothing. You can have feminine jeans or masculine-looking jeans. You ought to be able to tell the, the difference in their adornment. You know, some cut their hair so short they look like a man. You say, well, that's for convenience. Well, you need to rethink that through because Paul speaks that it's a disgrace for a woman to to wear her hair like a man, just like it's a disgrace for a man to wear his hair like a woman. 
that God makes some clear distinctions. And so now if you have a, a, a girl that's, you know, like a tomboy, and most of us know what that term means, and they're around other children in middle school and high school age, more and more they're going to be hit on um, by lesbians because they're going to assume this is why you dress the way you do. And so, Mom, you should be feminine in your modeling to your daughters because you want them to be young women. And so, yeah, you put the pink bow on their hair when they're three days old. Um, you, you dress them like girls because that's what you're developing. That's part of it. There's an excellent series, tremendous series, that my wife did on raising godly girls just like she did one on raising godly boys. You can find that at Search the Scriptures. It's under the Mothering from the Heart label. It's a number of messages that she did. I think you should listen to that. And this is a dad that's calling. You should listen to it with your wife because we're living in a day where all the morals that God underscored and wrote about in Scripture are being downgraded, laughed at, mocked, we're living in a culture with an upside-down mind. We are in the final phase of judgment that God puts on a nation. First, he gives them to sensuality. Then God gives them over to sexual perversion, homosexuality. Then God gives them over to a depraved or what we might say an upside-down mind where you call evil good and good evil, and that's where our nation is today. And so you want to see not how close you can get to the edge, but how far away from the edge of sin you can be. So you don't want to dress your little girl like a boy. That's not to say that she doesn't dress appropriately when she's going out to play, but you want to build women-like aspects into her life. Very, very, very important. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Zach from Missouri writes, I was hoping to learn more and gain some resources defending Christianity, specifically some of the disparities between Catholic and Protestant beliefs. A buddy and I have been going back and forth about it, so I started to do some research, but have been struggling with where to start. Well, um, let me just say that sometimes when you're evangelizing with a Roman Catholic, you are at a better starting place than when you are evangelizing with, say, a liberal Protestant. But even that is beginning to change. You know, is the Pope Catholic? We would ask rhetorically if we wanted to give an affirmation to some issue we're facing. And, and now the answer is no, the Pope is no longer Catholic. So even Pope Francis is not really all that Catholic. He's denied Jesus being the only way to God. Two weeks ago, he came out and said that Parents should be loving and sensitive and understanding towards their children that are adopting a transgender or homosexual lifestyle. Well, if by that he meant, hey, we should love them unconditionally, I would say yes, but that's not what he meant. And that's really sad. That's pathetic. He's basically asking parents to endorse what God calls an abomination. And so, again, you don't want to lose your children. Send them to the government schools there's a good chance you're going to lose them. Look, if, if the church has them four or five hours a week and the school has them, you know, 50 hours a week, I can tell you who's probably going to win in the uh, mind process. The world has one 
ministry and being conformed. They want you to be conformed to the way they think. And God has a different ministry. It's being transformed. Of course, you can't transform an unregenerate mind. So with that said, there are some Catholics who you start with. They already believe in the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe the Bible to be the word of God, though most of them have never read it, just like most Americans have never read it. So you may be at a better starting point. And what a lot of people sometimes do who are evangelical born-again Christians is they start, you know, raising issues that are not pertinent to conversion, like uh, questioning the authority of the Pope as being God's unique man. Now, if that's a stumbling block to getting to the gospel, then you address it. Or they'll question the real presence in the Lord's Supper. They'll say, well, you think that the elements become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they run down that road for a while in defending the symbolic view that this is not literal, but God is speaking symbolically, and you argue it contextually. and, And you get on issues that are not critical, like the perpetual virginity of Mary and Uh, or even the sinlessness of Mary. You can believe a lot of wrong things and still go to heaven. You cannot be wrong on the gospel. So the average Roman Catholic, if you were to uh, create a salvific formula that would describe where they are at, uh, the social gospel of the Protestant church would be good works equals salvation, if they even believe there is such a thing as salvation or heaven or hell depending on how liberal they are. But the social gospel is that God's will and desire through Christ is for us to transform the culture, to try to socially conform it to Christian values. And if you do it well enough and live it well enough, you'll get into heaven. Good works equals salvation. Obviously false. Paul said if one could be saved through their uh, obedience to the law, then Christ died for no reason. He died in vain. Galatians 2.21. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Um, The Roman Catholic position, and this is what the whole Protestant Reformation was over, is they didn't deny that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. So they would say, to put their theology into a formula, they would say, faith in Christ plus the good works I do will equal salvation. And by the way, that's what a lot of Protestants think, though it's certainly not Protestant doctrine uh, in terms of its history, but that's the way a lot of people think. They, they wouldn't deny that Jesus died and was buried, but they just think, well, there's certain things they need to do to also earn heaven. And of course, that answer will not make it either. Why? Because it denies the sufficiency of Christ that what Jesus did was a full payment for sin. He shouted from the cross to Telestai, meaning paid in full. And so what they're basically saying is, Jesus, you didn't really pay in full my sin. I need to help you out through the good things I do. And they're misapplying and misunderstanding Scripture. And number two, they're not really dealing with their sin as God sees them. To highly religious people, Jesus said the prostitutes and tax collectors are better candidates for heaven than you are. Uh, And he said that to a group of men who each day went to the temple on three different times to pray for an hour. They fasted one day in seven. They gave a tenth of all they had. And Jesus said the prostitutes are better candidates. 
And they were in the sense that you didn't have to convince the prostitute or the tax collector that they were bankrupt. They had stolen and lived so immorally. You didn't have to convince them typically that they were sinners. They knew it. Where that good, moral, righteous man, he thought he was fine. And Jesus said on another occasion to another group of religious men, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, air quotes, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. So the biblical definition or equation of salvation would be faith in Christ alone equals salvation plus good works, where good works are the fruit of salvation but not the root of salvation. And so in Roman Catholicism, they call it the sin of presumption to say you know you're going to heaven. And that's certainly a logical conclusion if faith in Christ plus good works equals salvation. Because how would you know until you died whether you did enough good to make up for the bad if you're helping in the salvation process? And how would you know the good you did? You did good enough. You wouldn't. And typically, unless you are deemed a saint, when you die, you go not from earth into the presence of the Lord, as the Bible teaches, absent from the body, present with the Lord. For me to live is Christ, to die is great gain. Today you'll be with me in paradise. No, you go to purgatory, and you suffer for a period of time to make up for your unrighteousness because Christ didn't make a full payment. So those are the critical issues. So the average Roman Catholic, like many people today in our Protestant churches, um, believe about Christ, but they don't believe in Christ. They believe about Christ. They just don't believe in Christ. Now, once you get that person to understand what the Scripture clearly says, and I might suggest they listen to Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend, where I kind of walk through this in great depth. It's at searchthescriptures.org, and you can click on it, and they can watch the video presentation, audio. We can send you a DVD if that would be of help to you. Um, But once they cross that line and they are in the kingdom, then as they begin to grow, which they'll be able to do because they'll have the mind of Christ, so they'll have a new capacity to think that they didn't have prior to it. And so with this new capacity to think, they're going to start asking questions. And to answer their questions intelligently, I still think the best textbook on dealing with Roman Catholicism is by Lorraine Bettner. Lorraine Bettner. I think it's B-O-E-T-T-N-E-R. He wrote it in 1961, if I remember the original copyright, but it's been reprinted over and over and over again because it's such a great textbook on Roman Catholicism. And what's good about it is that it deals with original documents because you see very often people say, well, Catholics teach such and such. You know, you can sit all week, you all week long and just go to confession and ask for forgiveness and you're fine. Well, they don't actually teach that. That's a straw man, and you certainly do not want to create a straw man when you're dealing with someone who's sincerely looking and searching. So he does a great job in going to original documents, quoting from those documents, and then comparing it to what the Bible says, and that would be very, very useful. But don't get, you know, um, caught up in secondary issues that would that you could believe wrong on and still go to heaven on. You want to focus on the gospel. That's the primary issue. And once they're regenerated by believing the gospel, they're going to have a new set of eyes and ears in which to be able to absorb biblical truth. 
All right, we've got about three and a half minutes left. I think we can take this one. Sue from Branchville, South Carolina writes, We have moved and in searching for a new church in which to serve, have found one that uses the ESV Bible. Is that a reliable translation to use? Uh, The ESV Bible is a decent translation. It stands for the English Standard Version. They actually took uh, the old RSV, not to be confused with the new RSV, and they bought the rights, which some people took issue with because I think if I remember correctly, they paid $600,000 for the rights to the old RSV, and they gave it to the Worldwide Council of Churches, which is a liberal apostate organization teaching there's a multiplicity of ways to God. And so some people were like really upset. Why would you want to financially support that organization? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. They took that translation and they redid it. You have to have a change in so many words for a new translation to be considered unique. And they created the ESV. Um, I still think the ideal gold standard would be the new American standard. And they've just come out in the 2020 translation. A few things I wish they hadn't done. Um, But with that said, overall, I still think it's the most precise, accurate translation that's available uh, to us in learning Scripture. It's a very modern, literal translation. But the ESV is very good, too. Um, I don't like the ESV Study Bible, um, so very often when a group of translators create a translation, then that same group and the publisher that's responsible for the printing of that Bible will create a study Bible. So I think the study Bible is very weak. I've seen a lot of uh, things in it that I thought, man, that's a crummy answer, uh, and it wasn't well done. Now, if you want to study this issue in detail, you can go to my course on Bibliology, and I think it's section six. It's a 500-page course, 500 pages of note-taking outlines. But in the section that I deal with English translations, I walk through the ESV along with all the other major English translations. I never want to disparage in people's minds like, oh, you know, only the King James or only the NAS or only the ESV. Um, it's not like that at all. God has protected his word. But no, if uh, that's the translation they're using, they're trying to teach the Bible. A lot of the churches that were using the NIV uh, went to the ESV. Uh, They didn't use the old New American Standard because it was too wooden for them. But the ESV is a good translation. We're out of time. Hey, thanks for joining us this day on the Bible Line. God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday.